Hello there, and welcome to another fantastic episode of Unstoppable Rise, a resource that helps motivated individuals press on towards the mark of self-actualization using a combination of old-school wisdom and new retactics to help achieve this end. My name is Sam, and today we're going to be talking about frame and social dynamics. All right, so what I'm about to share, what I'm about to talk about here is top secret information, guys. You got to promise that you're not going to spill the beans on this. You're not just going to go run out and tell your friends about this, that you heard about this. Um, And this, in my opinion, is the key to fulfilling and productive social interactions that have a positive outcome for everyone involved in the interaction. And... I was just kidding about the top secret information. This is something that's out there everywhere and you probably have heard of it. And this concept is a mental model that I know as frame or that's called frame. And it's something that you've probably already heard of, especially if you're into psychology and social psychology. And this concept of frame is how we function uh, as human beings. And it has its origin in psychology, but it's been used in many other different spheres of psychology, like NLP, neurolinguistic programming. And if you're into dating advice or pickup, as it's called, then you've probably heard of this as well. But it originally comes from just social psychology. So on the surface, frame is basically how you see a specific situation or even the world itself. But... It's really so much more than that, and we'll dive deeper into its implications later in this episode. But I feel in order to truly understand frame, the concept of frame, you have to know how the brain works. And this isn't exactly on the mark, but it's an approximation based on years and years of neuroscientific and psychological research by people much smarter than I am. So this is something that's worth considering, all right? So... I want you to think of the world around you as a vast web of data and information. Data and information that's coming in at all times in all places. And your brain is a super machine that is constantly filtering through this data it receives from five and even in some people, six sensory information. All of your senses are constantly calibrating to adjust to this current environment And it's feeding data to your brain, which is adjusting your body to the environment. And it does this on a subconscious level in a matter of microseconds. So when you eat a piece of food, uh, your blood pressure adjusts and the salt in your body, the salt levels in your body adjust itself to compensate for what that food is doing to you on a... uh, on a macro microscopic level and a macroscopic level, it's changing the composition of your digestive system and your entire physical system. So your body is adjusting something like food, the air you're breathing, especially if you go into higher altitudes, your body is constantly adjusting to the information it's getting from the world around you saying, Hey, we're elevating, we're going to a higher elevation. So you need to compensate for this elevation. So make this guy suck in as much oxygen as possible so we can keep him alive. And that's one small example that your body does on a subconscious level. And that's in the physical realm. How does this look on a 
psychological and mental sphere. Well, when you come into this world as a baby and as a child, this world is very new to you. So you're constantly sucking in information that you can understand and orient yourself to this new world. That's how we learn as kids. You know, you get to a certain age and you start sucking in information and Kids are obviously very curious because they're trying to learn as much as they can about all this data that's coming in. So that's a natural phase of development. And if a kid wasn't curious, then something is wrong, right? So you get to a certain age, usually around late adolescence, when you start creating and solidifying these mental models of how you believe the world should work based on past experience and sometimes, uh, many times actually, things you've heard from other people. So... You may have heard that from your uncle or from your cousin or somebody went to, let's say, Cusco in Peru saying, oh, it's a great place. It's a somebody else says, oh, Cusco is a great place. It's very cheap, very affordable. Somebody else says that, oh, well, you know, Cusco is sort of here and there, but I had a good time. So when you get a whole bunch of people telling you, uh, let's say you have 10 people tell you a certain thing about Cusco, Peru, right? So eight of them are positive, one of them is neutral, and one of them is negative. Well, you're going to take all that data and come to a conclusion about Cusco and say that, well, maybe this place is pretty fun, and I'd like to check it out someday and come to my own conclusions on it, but I haven't been there before, so I'm going to take the word of other people who've been there before. And I'm just going to say that Cusco is a pretty nice place. That's a pretty cool place. And then you file that information into your mental filing cabinet of Cusco. When you hear the word Cusco, Peru, or you uh, see it on a map or associate it visually, mentally, uh, word, definition, whatever, you say, oh, that's a pretty cool place based on the associations that you've come to a conclusion on of the experiences that you've heard from other people. And that is followed away into a place in your brain, right? Um, So this is called a paradigm. This thing you've created around the location, location of Cusco, Peru, and even sometimes to a larger extent, South America. This is called a paradigm. And you have one for every area of your life. And you have many paradigms for every concept of that area, right? So you have a paradigm and a belief system for things like religion, politics, how you view dating should work, your work life, your friend's life, uh, your effectiveness, all of those. You have a paradigm based around those. And these all combine in some way to form your own unique world view called a meta paradigm. And this is your overall worldview. And this is the sum total of all of your beliefs and how you believe reality should work. Now, I've talked about this before in the episode of uh, some traps that happened to you in your late 20s. And part of this is linking back to that is um, building your life on a wrong paradigm. And I'll get further into what that entails. So having a paradigm is good because you need to function as a proper human being and as an adult. And of course, there's always a catch in these types of things. So here it is. And the catch is due to the ambiguous nature of life in general and the lack of productive feedback on certain areas in your life, it's inevitable that some of your beliefs are wrong. 
we can't be right about everything. So it's for sure that we're wrong about certain things. No one uh, is right all the time. And no one is wrong all the time as well. So there are probably some certain areas where you built very solid paradigms and worldviews. And you've built your paradigm on House of Cards pretty much. So it's based on something that's not aligning with reality. And like I said, by wrong, I believe, or I mean like beliefs that are not harmonious more or less with how reality works. And of course, much of reality is subjective, but there's a lot of things that simply aren't. And here's a good example you could probably relate to where you probably figure out on your own. Take take gravity for instance, right? Gravity is an absolute. It affects everyone and all things at all times on Earth. No matter where you are on Earth, gravity is affecting you. No matter who you are, gravity is affecting you. If I have a misguided belief system and a misguided paradigm that gravity doesn't exist, then I can do something incredibly stupid, like jump off of a tall building and expect to fly. And that belief that I had didn't match up with reality, and I'll pay the price as a result. So beliefs like that can be very dangerous, and something like that's pretty obvious. Uh, belief like putting your hand in fire is bad, jumping off of buildings is bad, standing in front of cars is bad, uh, putting yourself in harm's way pretty much is bad. So those things are pretty obvious, but obviously <laughs> life isn't so obvious, right? And a lot of the misguided beliefs that someone can have can be an overtly less right life-threatening areas like interpersonal relationships or how they see themselves in relation to the world so these subtle nuanced areas it's very easy to build a paradigm that is less aligned and less favorable to how life should work and life how life does work more or less and something like this is obviously a very intangible concept and a very hard concept to wrap your mind around but once you do it makes it a lot easier to really operate well as a social being in the world. Now, here's where I want to drive this point home. Here's the whole crux of this whole feel, this whole tangent that I went on, okay? Once you get to that certain age where you've created a solid set of beliefs of how life is supposed to work, your brain starts instantly discarding information that doesn't fit those beliefs or it warps them to fit those beliefs in a certain way. The only time your mind really opens up is if the topic is very complex and if you're very ignorant in that subject. So something like physics, chemistry, uh, stoichiometry, uh, some philosophical topics, um, anything that's very highbrow and high level and uh, as Matthew McConaughey said in uh, The Wolf of Wall Street, above the shoulders mustard shit. Anything that's very complex and anything that's very has a lot of has a lot of uh, loose ends to it. That's where your mind opens up a little bit, but only to accommodate that complexity. And some people, their mind even closes tighter because they've established that this complexity is inherently bad. Right. So within these paradigms themselves, the mind starts to create frames of reality based around these patterns that you've internalized. And frames are mental viewpoints that you impose on a specific situation, consciously or unconsciously, mainly unconsciously, so that you can get a better handle on it. 
Like I said, life is just raw data and frames are how you take that subjectivity and raw data and how you make it an absolute in your worldview and how you see the world and operate. Here's a basic example that uh, also, again, drives this point home. And you may have been at the at the uh, end of this and you may have also seen this. For example, a guy sees an attractive girl. He says, oh, my God, she's so hot. She's so amazing. She's out of my league. If I talk to her, she'll reject me. Is that true? Well, maybe. In his worldview, it's definitely true. It's a belief in his worldview that keeps him comfortable. It keeps him safe from rejection, which he's internalized as bad. And he's internalized rejection as dangerous and harmful for his self-image. So what happens when he sees contrary evidence to this frame? What happens when he sees contrary evidence that he's wrong, right? What happens when he sees women who are attractive and out of his league with guys who he and many others perceive as not attractive? Well, he'll start to dismiss it as, well, he must be loaded or he must be good in bed or he must be her brother and she doesn't really love him and blah, 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 all this, all these rationalizations, right? So these rationalizations keep the paradigm intact and prevent him from having to create accommodation in his worldview that he's worked so hard to build, whether consciously or unconsciously. On the physical level, this means he doesn't have to rewire his brain and accommodate the new belief system using the brain's precious energy resources to create new neural pathways. And he doesn't have to re-sculpt his brain around this new paradigm and says, you know, actually, women like all types of guys. Maybe she would have liked me if I talked to her. Maybe she uh, would have set me up with her friend. Maybe something else would have happened. But that worldview, that paradigm keeps you from entertaining all those possibilities and it keeps you from entertaining that complexity. So what this means is the frame is intact, the paradigm is intact, he has to remain the same and not put in the hard effort to change what is a very entrenched belief. Because if he's wrong about this, what 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 else is he wrong about? You know, that's a that's a very scary proposition. That may mean his entire worldview is misaligned with reality and he'll have to start over from virtually nothing which, again, is very daunting. And knowing that you've built your entire life on this unstable foundation is very, very ego-destroying, right? So by not changing, he means it means he gets to stay comfortable and everything is A-okay. Everything's all right. Everything's just perfect. You don't get to change. You just, just stay comfortable. Just stay where you are. Just stay on your couch eating your bag of Cheetos watching Netflix, right? You get to keep the status quo. And that's what the brain wants. That's what the paradigm wants. All right. So how does this work in social situations and social interactions? Well, every person comes into a social interaction or social situation with their own perception of how the world works. They come into a social situation with their own frames, their own paradigms again. Thus, they try to impose this worldview or mini worldview or mini frame onto an interaction and this isn't bad this is just how humans work again they're trying to grasp get their hands around what this interaction means right and this happens subconsciously and consciously as well one example you see a lot or you can hear about a lot is a guy who's been socially isolated or he spent much of his life interacting with the screen playing video games uh being on his phone a lot um, playing computer games, a lot of people who 
were of that generation where World of Warcraft uh, was pretty big. A lot of them came out socially stunted. Um, there's a lot of them who I've spoken to and I've known that they were part of that generation who compulsively played computer games like World of Warcraft and they spent 10, 12 hours a day playing those games and they pretty much missed out on their teenage and adolescent years and they were very socially awkward people going into their uh going into their 20s right so you'll see guys like these who spent a lot of their time socially isolated and they come into a social interaction and they don't know how to calibrate themselves so they're a bit weird and uncalibrated and then people think in the back of their mind people who have been interacting with people a lot people who know are normal quote-unquote normal people people who may have been on sports teams which is inherently social people who just generally aren't hardcore gamers they're just thinking like what the hell is wrong with this guy and nothing's really wrong with him he may have autism or asperger's which is a different story if especially if it's undiagnosed but again he's coming to social situation with the wrong frames and sometimes he may not even have a frame really that he's constructed around that social situation. Another example of the frame comes again in the form of romantic interest. A guy sees a girl he likes when he's out, he approaches, they get into an interaction. Instantly, he starts to put her on a pedestal. She's the goddess and he's the peasant that hopes her good graces shine on him. That frame causes him to behave in a way that isn't confident, that isn't masculine. And she begins to lose attraction for him very, very quickly. So every time that goddess-peasant frame is proven true, it gets more solid, more entrenched, and harder to get rid of. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy and becomes something like confirmation bias. So you start to see every woman you view as attractive through this lens. And obviously that's not good <laughs> because obviously everyone is different. Every social interaction is different. So I want to come back to the point of why you should have a good arsenal of good frames at your disposal, frames that are empowering rather than disempowering. Well, there's a lot of people who operate with a good degree of relative unconsciousness. And what do I mean by that? Well, I mean, there's a there are some people out there who will try to use a social interaction for self-serving ends rather than creating a harmonious social atmosphere for the good of everyone in that in that interaction. You'll see people who use conversations for self-image or ego enhancement, like talking about how smart they are, how much money they have, what job they have, who their parents are, what their family background is from, what college they went to, all this surface external BS. And they'll use that as a conversation to bolster up their self-image rather than using it as a way to get to know other people. You, th you can think of the guy who is the hot shot, who has a high-powered job, talks about how his job is pretty cool, how he has, uh, how he travels a lot, how he's a jet setter, how he does this, how he does that, how he's uh, VP of a department at 25 years old or 30 years old, or how he's the wonderkind, or you'll encountered the loudmouth at a party who uses politics as a way to show how intellectual he is. I unfortunately knew a lot of people like that, um, people who try to um, intellectualize things and 
use it as a way to show their upper crust nature of how they're just in the know, right? So you'll see people like that. Or you'll see people who use social interactions as a way to talk about how the world is so unfair, how things always happen to them, how the how the man is putting them down. And all these guys, all these people, they take everyone's vibe down a notch because, as we all know, misery loves company. So many, so many different situations, so many situations there as there are people under the sun, right? So you'll meet people like that. And sometimes you'll even meet very unconscious individuals and situations that can get very dangerous very fast. And these are like the guys who want to start fights at bars, bosses who want to throw their way around. They get actually physically violent. They get physically in your face. Um, They say they're going to kill you or they say that they're going to do all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, They threaten you. They intimidate you. Even people who are in, in your inner immediate circle, like you see a lot of um, interpersonal relationships and romantic relationships get violent. You hear of domestic abuse. That can happen. Um, so in all these situations where the person has just, they're operating off of what is known as quote unquote low vibration energy. Um in all these situations, you want to be the person who is establishing the frame and lets it know that you don't tolerate this socially obtuse behavior. And there's many, many ways of dealing with this, pretty much an infinite number of ways. And I'll get into one of those uh, a little bit later on. But if you're the person with a higher level of consciousness, you're going to need to step in and take control of that situation to make sure that it doesn't escalate to unnecessary levels. Not for greedy, selfish ends, but because the end result could be de- could be very devastating if you don't. Here's a corollary to that. In any situation where you're presenting yourself from someone else who has leverage relative to you, the minute that other person takes control of the situation, it's game over for you. It's not that you can't regain control, but it's going to be very, very difficult, especially if you aren't like a social Machiavelli or some type of ultra charismatic guy or someone who's just slick as soap, who's able to really talk their way and really bullshit uh, social interactions. It's it's very, very hard to regain control in that. And I met some people who are very... Uh, chameleon with their communication and they're able to turn situations which seemed like they were tanking south and it's just like the most magical thing and if you have that gift of gab then definitely use it to your advantage in the pursuit of good not for manipulation so what do I exactly mean by this in sales when the buyer starts controlling the situation controlling the frame you are done the buyer isn't trying to sell themselves. They're not going to go and buy uh, dish. If you're selling dishwashing soap to restaurants or if you're a medical salesman or if you're um, or if you're an insurance salesman, the buyers aren't trying to close themselves. You have to close them. You have to tell them that based on what you've told me that this product is a good fit for you. The buyer's not just going to go and enthusiastically say, oh, sign me up for that. You'll have some people that do that, but, you know, the life isn't that easy. 
um, sales is not that easy or else everybody would be doing it. So you have to make the close and only you close when you control this frame. But most of us aren't in sales. Um, most of us don't have any idea of what salesmen or inside or outside go through when they're trying to close prospects. There can be some very difficult prospects. Um, so I want to relate this to real life. What does this look like in everyday life? If you're in a job interview and you don't control the situation, if you're not able to present yourself as the best candidate, you're done. When you talk to a woman, if she starts to control the interaction and start to frame you with her limited knowledge of who you are based on when you came up to her, especially if you were nervous and jittery saying, oh, oh, oh hi, hi, you're, you're done, okay? If you're an entrepreneur and you start and you're pitching your ideas to a group of investors and you start letting them control the interaction and you start letting them tell the story of your product and you start letting them just kick you around, you are done. And a good example of this last one is the show Shark Tank. You see this all the time. If you ever seen when some of those guys start kicking the investors around like they're playing with their food, you, if you ever seen animals play with their food and the animals panicked, animal knows it's going to die. Uh, the the predator is just kicking it around, knock it around, knows that the animal's going to die. They know that uh, the animal's done, but they're just playing around with it. Because they enjoy the sadistic pleasure of playing with their food. <laughs> playing with their food, right? Uh, you'll see this in the show Shark Tank when the investors start knocking these guys around. And the situation starts to spiral out of control. Then you get the people trying to pitch the product. They get nervous. They lose frame. They lose their cool. And they lose frame control. And they just get rejected because... They weren't able to be cool under pressure. They weren't able to handle the shark. In all these situations I just mentioned, the other party has something you want. Whether it be a job, a potential romantic relationship, or investor money, these people are in a position of leverage. They have no compelling reason to steer the interaction towards a positive end for you. Because they're not the one giant to justify their frame. Sometimes, some of these people will want you to win, but... Most of the time, they won't. They'll just be neutral or indifferent. And in all of these situations, the person with leverage will start testing the frame. They'll start poking at that frame. This is where you'll see some interviewers be unnecessarily stern or judgmental. And they'll start throwing questions at you from left field because they want to see if your frame is legitimate. Like you'll see someone who's an interviewer saying... Um, what is the square root of pi or something ridiculous like that? Or how many miles away is the sun from the earth? Or how many galaxies are there in the Andromeda uh, galaxy? Or so something stupid like that, right? Um, that's because they're trying to test the frame. They're trying to throw you off balance. Um they want to frame they for for this situation they want to see if the frame is legitimate are you really a good candidate for this job or are you just going to waste our time and money interviewing and hiring you a woman especially if she's attractive particularly if she's attractive will start hitting on that frame pretty hard why because she wants to see if you're actually the confident self-assured guy who's establishing the frame 
or if you're just full of crap like all the other guys she's met since she's 12, 13, 14 years old. I don't think a lot of guys, a lot of men understand that uh, a lot of women, most women have had guys hitting on them since they were before before they were even teenagers. And they've had to deal with a lot of creepy guys, a lot of scummy guys, a lot of guys who just don't have good intentions. And it's very, it's very rare that um, some guy won't want to have sex with her or just want to use her for his ends. So naturally, women are going to start developing testing measures and they start doing this especially in their teenage years and this only escalates further and they do that as a protective measure because um you know they want to see if you have good intentions if you're actually a legitimate guy who actually wants to have some type of relationship whether even if it's a short-term relationship that's in their best interest and they'll test you in different ways every woman has a way of doing this uh for her own needs, right? Especially if a woman is very popular, if she's very attractive, she's surrounded by a lot of guys. Um, she's going to have filtering mechanisms to filter out guys that um, just want to get with her, right? So going back to frame, in these situations, if you stand up to these tests, you increase the glow and you become more attractive to these people in, in these situations. You want to take away their leverage, pretty much. So how do you do that? What's one way to do that? And one way to do that is just by one word, abundance. You pretty much don't care if any of these people accept or reject you. You don't care if they offer you the job. You'd like the job, but even if you don't get it, you'll find another one. It's, it's no big deal. You don't care if she doesn't give you her number or goes home with you. You'd like her to, but no sweat. There's tons of other women out there who will like you just for you. You don't care whether you get the investor funding. You don't care. Some other investor will fund you and the project and life will continue on. You just don't give a damn about any of these. Why? Because you have options. A person with options is attractive. Options removes the card of leverage from the deck real quick. And that's why um, options is attractive because no one wants a needy person. No one wants someone who's desperate to work for them or someone desperate. Desperation is just a repellent for social interactions in general because it's like this person is trying to get something because they don't have anything of their own to give. And no one likes someone who's selfish, who's trying to grasp for their own resources. So that's one reason why options is always important. Another situation where you'll see some like frame battles come up is when guys try to one up other guys. And this happens a lot in high school or college, but sometimes also as an adult, especially as a younger adult, um, you'll be at a party or another social gathering and you'll have one of those guys there. You know, the guys who are sarcastic or ironic or making fun of other people, the guys who just are judgmental and they just have a negative vibe and they're ruining the overall jovial vibe of what should be a party atmosphere and you may know people like this and you know you know that they reek of negativity so these guys enter interaction start trying to assert their frame and they start trying to throw their weight around because uh these guys are very passive aggressive so they do it very subtly 
And they'll pick a guy who they think they can diminish, and they'll start testing him. They'll start poking at that frame. They'll start throwing shade his way or start trying to irritate him, make him lose his cool, and make the frame start to collapse. And obviously he does this in a passive-aggressive manner because he's a passive-aggressive person. He can't stand up to real confrontation. And he'll usually do this in front of people, most oftentimes women, um, in an attempt to use you as social bait. Most of these guys you don't really have to worry about, but early on uh, when this happens, you want to euthanize this situation because this person can cause problems for you later on and be a fly in, <laughs> fly in the ointment, so to speak, right? <laughs> I love that expression. <laughs> um, and it's, it, it's very simple to defuse this situation. It's very simple. When this would happen to me, it wouldn't happen a lot, but it would happen every so often. And I think this has happened sometimes to some guys very subtly. When someone tries to step out of line with me, I just stare at them with very strong eye contact and a very stern deadpan. And I don't break it. I don't break it. Every time, every single time, the other guy looks down submissively or he breaks eye contact and says, <laughs> just kidding. Then I, then I continue talking like nothing happened. In that situation, I establish dominance, the frame gets reinforced, and good social interactions continue. It's the craziest thing. It's the craziest thing. And this guy will often withdraw for the night or he'll just be a very socially diminished version of his passive-aggressive persona. So why is this type of nonverbal communication effective when it comes to social interactions? And I think it's because of uh, two, two main reasons. First, it shows non-verbally that I'm willing to break social rapport and create a tense atmosphere to telegraph my displeasure for this type of childish behavior. And secondly, it's a look of disapproval that someone who's in charge or who's an authority would give someone who is a subordinate. You remember those looks your mother or father, your mom or dad would give you, and then you feel ashamed of yourself because you're like, uh-oh, I know I did something wrong. That's pretty much the same type of thing here. So when I immediately break rapport and I set up this type of nonverbal challenge, there's only two options. The only two options are escalation or de-escalation. Escalation, de-escalation means the guy is, was wrong, and escalation obviously means some type of verbal or physical uh, confrontation, which most guys who are passive aggressive will not do because they don't, they can't, they can't, they can't handle conflict. That's why they're passive aggressive in the first place, right? In most cases, the guys are afraid of what will happen in escalation, so they try to immediately de-escalate the situation, and they end up losing credibility in the process because it makes them look weak. And every time I do this, someone will always comment afterwards on my strong eye contact. And why, why would they do that? Because it takes balls to do this. People fear losing approval from others because of social friction and possible embarrassment. But if you do this within the frame of, I respect myself, I respect everyone else, but I don't let other people walk over me. People just respect someone who stands for values and someone who stands for themselves. Someone who has conviction in who the hell they are. Now, this is something that's getting into the realm of pretty deep social dynamics, and that type of stuff is kind of advanced, and I want to keep this on a basic level today. But then that's one way of dealing with the social challenges that I mentioned earlier. Uh, you may have your own way. Uh, 
so so you can find out what works for you right and uh just take that approach with a grain of salt because uh for some people that can that can be pretty extreme so don't copy after me <laughs> so i want to wrap this up how do you implement this idea of frames and build better frames in the process well i think there's some little things you can start doing um this isn't going to get you uh 100% a master of building frames and paradigms and worldviews i think that takes some really deep 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 inner work beyond what can be covered in a little hour two hour discussion but i think with some of these you could probably get pretty far so i would first say you know have good intentions like i said the best way to create good social interactions is to have good intentions meaning you should want the other person or other people to leave the interactions better when they first came in when you have this intention you create this ever radiating circle of goodness and people start to associate you with good feelings. Most people don't want to be around someone who makes them feel bad about themselves. So don't be that person. And when you hold that frame, your mindset around every social inter- in interaction and encounter, you make it easier for you to interact with others and sharpen your social skills as a result. So I always have the intention that everyone is at their core, a good person. Some people may be more misguided and they more may be more ignorant than other people but that doesn't mean that um they're not a good person they're pretty much working off of the frames and the paradigms that they developed as a means of coping with reality or survival some people grew up in very harsh environments where it was literally uh survival of the fittest i can definitely get that i can relate to that um so some people have frames that are mal socially maladaptive so i just believe that at their core everyone's a good person but some people may be like i said ignorant and when i have that when i have that perception of people and i don't immediately prejudge people and people people feel that people react to that so they're more likely to want to talk to you and engage in social interactions the second one I'd say is create small wins and evidence for your frame. You want to create scenarios where you create justification for that frame. For example, the frame of I can hold my own in social interactions has been justified because of countless scenarios where that was the case. And something like this is the essence of confidence. Confidence is drawing upon past victories in order to feel self-assured about a current situation. I usually don't recommend reaching into your past for data to justify present circumstances, but in this situation, it could work and usually does work, so take advantage of it. And this is one example of uh, cognitive reframing. So you're taking uh, advantage of a past that may have been, uh, in all accounts, bad and traumatic, but you're reframing it to say that, hey, this past showed me I can topple anything that comes my way. And that's confidence. And sometimes you'll get guys who say, well, my entire past has been one of complete failure and rejection. So how do I create confidence from that? In that case, it could be a thinking error where you're just not seeing your wins because of cognitive delusion, or it could have legitimately been from a lifetime of being under the thumb, being under life's thumb. 
Some people have situations that were truly tragic, and they have no emotional content to fall back on. In that case, the only thing you can do is to put one foot in front of the other, and you'll just have to summon up your willpower to keep doing that over a period of time until you become that person who you see in your mind's eye. A baby who's never walked before doesn't question their ability to walk. They just do it because they have no past to draw upon. And like you, you have to become like a child again. These child, these children, babies have faith that they'll walk and eventually they do walk. That's why Nike's slogan resonates with so many people. In many cases, you need to just do it. The third one I'd say is visualize yourself in specific situations. So visualization is a powerful tool if used properly because the mind can't really tell the difference between a real experience and one that was just imagined. Think about when you're dreaming. Dreaming is a type of visualization because the conscious mind is at a lulled state, meaning the dream seems more weird, seems more real. And to make visualization really effective, that requires you getting into a different type of brainwave state. So our brains are always at a some type of state of uh, frequency. And usually our brains are at a high beta wave frequency. And this beta wave is associated with wakefulness. But during practices like meditation or even on some drugs, the brain goes into a different type of state. And in meditation, the brain goes into an alpha state, which is a alert wakefulness relaxed alert wakefulness is alpha and some monks who have practiced meditation for decades are in a permanent alpha state they're in this relaxed calm state all the time and this makes this state makes it easier for visualizations to seem more real and i talked about this in the article on autosuggestion which is very similar to this so over time, as you visualize yourself acting in certain situations, you'll find it easier to be that person because your brain has rehearsed that. You've done mental rehearsal. And many athletes, business people, CEOs, um, executives, performers, all these people who are expected to perform in high-pressure situations have visualization as a tool in their back pocket. And they use it pretty frequently for some great results. So make visualization a part of your routine. And the last one I'd say is you need to take care of yourself. And self-care, I think, is really important because you're the medium through which different frames are manifested into the world. If you want to bring positivity, productivity, and all other types of goodness into this world, you need to be at a very high state. You need to be at a peak state. In order to be at a peak state, this means taking care of your inner and outer world. Sleep, exercise, hygiene, physical diet, mental diet, taking a break when you should take a break. Um, all these are holistic approaches to taking care of yourself. And it will make it much easier to perform when you need to perform and create favorable outcomes for yourself and other people in the world. So that's it. And to sum up, frames are the way you see a particular situation in a particular area, and they're supplied by your paradigms. Frames are not necessarily right or wrong. You can see any situation any way, but there are some frames that are more effective towards helping you achieve your goals and be in harmony with absolute reality. In social situations, 
and social settings, the person who has the most dominant frame usually dictates the pace and direction of that inter- interaction. In any situation where someone has leverage over you, you don't want them taking conscious control of the interaction. Generally speaking, the person with the highest degree of consciousness and self-awareness will dictate the direction of that interaction if they can draw upon that self-awareness during the interaction. And there are different ways to assert yourself and assert your frame in different interactions. And being someone who is on a path of self-awareness and being someone who is self-aware, it is your duty to make sure that the highest benefit for all people involved are achieved because you're aware. You know that the only thing in life really underlining everything is a sense of oneness and a sense of goodness for everyone involved. So have good intentions comes overall above everything else. And that's about it. I know I kind of uh, rambled on a bit in this one. A lot of these, <laughs> uh, a lot of these episodes, I just jump on here and just sort of shoot my mouth off for thoughts that I've been thinking of and percolating in the back of my mind. But I hope you got the basic concept behind framing. I know sometimes it's not easy to really grasp these types of uh, very dense and heady conversations uh, in this format. So definitely don't hesitate to go back and listen to it again if you feel you need to. And uh, if you want more of this content, if you liked what I talked about here, you definitely hop on to www.unstoppablerise.com. I talk more about this type of stuff over there. And if this aligns with you, definitely don't hesitate to check it out. So that's it for this one. And catch you on the next one. Hey guys, thanks for tuning in and listening in. I truly appreciate your support and your attention. It means a lot. If you like this content, go ahead and like the content. Go ahead and share the content with at least two other people you think would benefit. Doesn't hurt to spread the good stuff around, right? And if you're listening in on iTunes, go ahead and rate the show with a honest rating. This will definitely help the show grow. And I truly appreciate your feedback. So until next time, stay good. Take care of yourself. Take care of other people. And peace.